This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. Maud Gunn was born into a privileged background in England in 1866. Her father, a colonel in the British Army, was posted to Dublin during the 1880s, and Maud accompanied him. Here she became involved in the Land League, moved by the cruelty of the mass evictions of the period. Evictions I saw in 1885 changed the whole course of my life, transforming me from a carefree society girl into a woman of set purpose. I was determined to do my share to free Ireland from the British Empire. The wholesale destruction of the little houses of the people by battering rams was going on all over the country. 360,000 people were evicted from their little homes. No provision was made for the homeless, except the overcrowded workhouses, where children died like flies, where families were separated, men one side, women the other, as in prison. I think it was Parnell who said, England's gifts to Ireland were workhouses, prisons, and lunatic asylums. In 1886, helpless, I watched a thousand people made homeless on the windswept coast of Donegal. The men who attempted to defend their houses were carried off in handcuffs by the RIC. The women and children left to starve. Stones and boiling water were no match for guns. She and other members of the Land League formulated a plan of action to assist those affected by the evictions. Excitement was to be let to die down, so the Crown forces would be withdrawn. No lorries then to bring up reinforcements quickly. We would rebuild the houses and reinstate the evicted people. The whole countryside turned out, and the children and the women as anxious to work as the men. Houses were constructed incredibly quickly, and as soon as we got a few families reinstated, we held Cayleys. So there was work for everyone. Women baked grizzle cakes, shopkeepers contributed, packets of tea, and an occasional half-barrel of porter. A local fiddler played dance students, and any who could sing sang rebel songs, grand Cayleys, and great heart in the people. This period saw Maud Gunn become heavily involved in Irish culture at the time of the Gaelic revival. Her vocal protesting was unusual for the twin reasons of being a woman and being of respectable English birth. It was this second fact that gave her the means to sustain her campaign. It did, however, draw the attention of the authorities. Then a warrant for my arrest was signed in Dublin Castle. Irish intelligence service is always good. Pat O'Brien heard of that warrant a couple of hours after it was signed. A good friend and a great organiser, 
He at once procured a ticket for France. I arrived in Paris ill and consulted a doctor who told me I had TB and only about six months to live unless the disease was cured. He ordered me to go to a country place in the south of France and rest completely in the pine woods. In about four months, I recovered. While resting, I wrote articles on the evictions in La Revue Internationale, edited by Madame Ratazzi, a grandniece of Napoleon's. These articles led to an invitation to lecture on Ireland at the Collège de France. Women lecturers were a novelty. And so I was asked to lecture in many other places, in France, in Holland and Belgium. That warrant for my arrest not only saved my life, but led to quite other results than the English expected or desired. She returned to Ireland. Around this time she met William Butler Yeats, who promptly fell in love with her. She became his muse and featured prominently in his poetry. She turned down his marriage proposals at least four times, stating that his unrequited love for her was a boon for his poetry and that the world should thank her for this. Her continued movement in Irish literary and nationalist circles gave her a platform to further her causes. The Celtic Literary Society, founded by Willie Rooney, of which Arthur Griffiths was secretary, like all political organisations of those days, excluded women from membership but they invited me to lecture for them. So I used the opportunity of asking if they really thought Mother Ireland strong enough to go into battle with one arm tied behind her back, which was what this exclusion of women from political life meant, and suggested that they should invite their sisters and sweethearts to meet me in their room in Abbey Street and we would form a woman's organization for national independence. A few days after, I met some 14 sisters and sweethearts, all young, inexperienced in political work, but all loving Ireland and eager to work for her. What can we do? Which I replied, whatever you like, as I do. We all want to counter whatever the enemy is trying to do. England is preventing our language and our history being taught in the schools. We could start free classes to teach the children subjects forbidden in the schools. England is trying to get Irishmen to enlist in her army. We could start an anti-recruiting campaign. The girls agreed. That was how Inenia Nahern started. We started a dramatic class. Plays were written for us, like Willie Yates' Kathleen Hulahorn. Nearly all the first Abbey players, like Sally and Molly Allgood, Dudley Diggs and the Fays, were either pupils or teachers in our dramatic class. 
in Nienenherren laid the foundation of the Abbey Theatre. Dramatic efforts aside, Inigna Heron continued to agitate politically. Maudgon married Major John McBride, who had formed the Irish Transvaal Brigade to fight the British in the Boer War, and would go on to be executed for his part in the Easter Rising. The pair had a son, Sean McBride. Our anti-enlisting campaign was so successful that it brought Queen Victoria to Ireland to stimulate recruiting, which obliged us to start another campaign to stop official welcomes to English royal visitors. We held a great demonstrations, but failed to prevent Queen Victoria receiving the keys of the city of Dublin. But we succeeded in preventing Edward VII receiving them when he visited Dublin after his coronation. When Constance Markovitz joined the Nina Herren, she undertook to drill our boys' classes, and eventually she founded Tiananmen Herren. Finally, Kamlamon was founded in our offices in Harcourt Street, and the first branch was called after us, the Anelia branch of Kamlamon. Constance Markovic was the president of Kamenamon. Maud continued her radical political activism throughout the turbulent period that was to follow. She founded and joined several aid organisations for victims of the violence of the Rising, War of Independence and Civil War. Her son Sean McBride had an equally colourful career, which included a time as Chief of Staff of the IRA in the 1930s, founder of Amnesty International, a cabinet minister in the Dáil, and recipient of the Nobel and Lenin Peace Prizes. Maud Gan died in 1953. For other less well-known stories from this interesting period in Irish history, go to www.storiesfrom1916.com. This recording of Maud Gan is held by the Bureau of Military History, and we thank them for their permission to use it in this piece. I'm Owen Cody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>